0: It's good to be here again and open up God's word to you. That song we just sang, uh, bless the Lord O my soul, uh, and sing with all your heart. I was doing that this morning when I was preparing for this sermon. I have two favorite hymns of all time. My first one is the last hymn we're going to sing this morning, And Can It Be. Oh, does that bring me to tears every time. The second hymn is one that I, I wrote, the, I, I printed out the lyrics, and uh, because it it speaks to my heart. I'm a shepherd, because God's called me to be a shepherd, a shepherd of souls, a shepherd of a flock, and he's given me a shepherd's nature. So needless to say, I, I have loved this song. It's 154 years old. Does anybody know what it what I'm driving at, do you know the hymn? Have you heard of the 90 and nine? No? The 90 and nine. Ira Sankey was the worship leader for D.L. Moody, and he saw this poem that was composed in 1868, and he set it to music about four years later. Now, I was at home, and man, I was singing it because I'm all alone. And I've missed a whole bunch of notes. So rest assured, I'm not going to sing for you this morning. (laughs) But I would like to read it. I might put a little, a few musical notes along the way. But I want to read it to you because I think it undergirds uh, Luke 15. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. I can't get through this sometimes. Away on the mountains, wild and bare. Away from the tender shepherd's care. Away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast thy ninety and nine, are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that was lost. Out on the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless, ready to die, sick and helpless, ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for one who had gone astray, ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They're pierced to night by many a thorn. They're pierced to night by many a thorn. And all through the mountains thundered, riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gate of heaven. Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. I love that song. Uh, I wish I could sing, but uh, I would sing it so much more, but it captures the passion. That's in my heart. What an introduction! I wasn't planning to introduce the message this way, but when Brian prayed, Pastor Brian prayed for me. He said, "Lord, give Pastor Phil the freedom, and let the Spirit just lead." <laughs> Thank you, Spirit, for enabling my voice not to waver too far off. I've entitled this song, this message, "What brings joyful pleasure." to God's heart. Years ago, I had fellowship with a dear Christian brother, and he introduced the statement to me, and I've never forgotten it. He says, Phil, I want to bring pleasure to God's heart in my walk with Him. You know, Larry, that's, that's a good way to look at life. I want to bring pleasure to God's heart. We're always seeking pleasure from God to bring to our hearts but what am I going to do to bring pleasure to his heart? Yes, there's obedience and yes, there's serving and all of that, but I wanna bring pleasure in a very specific way. The subject matter for this sermon is God's joyful heart. And the compliment is there is exceeding heavenly joy when a sinner repents. And if you wanted a big idea to capture all of chapter 15, in a summary statement, it would be this, and others could probably say it far better than, than I could. While a lost soul deeply grieves the heart of God, the sinner's repentance brings celebration in heaven. That's the sermon title and the topic manner. And with that, I would like to read the account, uh, Luke 15. And... I'm gonna read from two different translations. The New American Standard first, and then the New Living Translation will be the second. And there are some interesting nuances there. Here is the reading from the New American Standard. And before I read, let me open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have sent your Son into this world the good shepherd who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you that you found me. Thank you that you found many here and have brought them to yourself. You have brought them home to the Father. And I would ask that you would give to each of us, uh, change our hearts, change the way we look at this passage Help us to be deeply compassionate for those who do not know Christ, that they too may know the grace and the forgiveness from the sin, from shame and guilt. Thank you, Father, for this word, and thank you for the words of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke 15, beginning at verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners... Irreligious Jews, mind you. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, which was equivalent to a day's wage, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now here's the reading from the New Living Translation. It's somewhat of a paraphrase. Tax collectors and notorious and other notorious sinners often came to listen. To Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. The same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns to God than over ninety-nine others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins, and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. I want to transition from this introduction and before I unfold the text a little clearer, I want to give you, I want to address three, historic, uh, three settings which undergirds this chapter. For us to just simply jump into Luke chapter 15 is to jump in the middle of something very significant. So I want to lay a foundation for this chapter and for John and for Pastor Brian when they speak. My transitional thoughts, there's a historical setting, there's a cultural setting, and there's a theological setting. And so I want to address the historical setting first. Luke 15 is the fourth parable of seven specific parables in Luke's travel narrative. Jesus has left Samaria and now he is making his way to the cross. Uh, He's determined to go to Jerusalem to fulfill God's plan, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Regarding the timing of this account, it's occurring about three months before the cross. So in the next three months, or in about three months time, Jesus will be crucified on the cross. He has withdrawn from Jerusalem where all the critics had gathered because now the Pharisees are really hot after him and they've already begun to scheme a plan to kill him. And so Jesus is not afraid, mind you, of the Pharisees, but rather he knows who holds his life in his hands. And he know, and God, and I want you to know that God holds your life in his hands. There's a day when you were born and there will be a day when you will die, and nothing is going to come in between. You're not gonna die prematurely. You're gonna die according to God's timetable. So Jesus goes to Perea, the area that is east of Judea, Samaria. And Jesus is spending time there. One, just to get away from the constant pressure of the Pharisees looking for him, but secondly, to take his disciples into his heart and to bring them into a closer fellowship with himself because he wants to prepare them for the ministry that they are going to assume after Christ dies on the cross and is raised from the dead and is ascended into heaven. The disciples need this final preparation. And so that's why we're in the last three months and the training and the intensity of that fellowship with Jesus and his disciples is certainly uh, intense. This fourth parable is made up of three stories, the lost sheep of which I'm speaking, the lost coin, and the, the lost sons. Again, John and Pastor Brian are going to address those specifically. And so that is the historical background, the timing, if you will, Let me talk briefly about the cultural background. There are some dynamics that we need to recognize. Um, There are significant differences between the outcasts and the religious authorities. Who are the outcasts? They're the tax collectors, they're the sinners. Who are the religious authorities? The Pharisees, the scribes, teachers of the law, okay? Question, when we jump right into Luke 15, we have to ask ourselves, I mean, Luke writes, and, he, and uh, I just love the way he opens up this chapter, but it's in the middle of significant movements. In Luke 15:1, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. Wow. Do you ever think about what draws sinners to God? What drew them to hear what Jesus had to say? It also drew the critics, and we'll address those in just a few moments. But all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes murmured. Outcasts of society came to hear Jesus. Why? Um, In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, I just love this this passage. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among people. But when he saw the multitudes, when Jesus looks at us and he sees the multitudes of our day, what does he see? He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. I have a question for you: Are you weary? Are you feeling somewhat scattered? I know that you're okay. You're not overcome with heat just yet, and uh, that's that's cool, pun intended. Nevertheless, Jesus looks at the multitudes and he has compassion on them. You can already make an application for yourself. Do you have compassion for others when you look at them? Does your heart go out to them when you see how difficult a life they may be having? We all have stresses, we all have pressures. The outcasts were drawn to Jesus because of his expressed compassion towards them. He gave them good news about the kingdom, which he preached. He preached the kingdom of God. And what did the outcasts of society, what did they believe? What did they hear? (coughs) What did they believe? They believed peace with God, rewards with God, with God life with God, freedom from sin, and to live in a kingdom where truth, justice, and peace, and holiness thrived. They believed all these things were possible. And that's why they drew near to Jesus. They, they got a little closer. They didn't want to miss anything. They wanted to hear what he was saying. On the other hand, why did the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come to hear Jesus? Was it out of jealousy? Was Jesus a threat to their system? Was he going to dismantle what they had built up over the years? Um, Whatever the reasons, the Pharisees felt emboldened to openly criticize Christ, especially among all the sinners that had gathered. And you could see these two groups. You could see the Pharisees looking at these sinners. Excuse me, and having nothing but disdain, and you can see the 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 sinners and tax collectors looking at the Pharisees and calling them all kinds of names. What were the Pharisees known for? Excuse me, just a moment, please. Jesus rightly criticized the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Saw part of the cultural setting. I promise I won't bore you with too many more details. But to understand the, the significance of the Pharisees and, and the sinners, throughout his three years of ministry, Jesus called out the religious authorities for their hypocrisy. Instead of having compassion upon the people that they Were to serve, the Pharisees and scribes expressed nothing but disdain towards sinners. They looked upon sinners as being deplorable. Have you heard that word before? Unworthy. Unworthy of my, my love and my attention, my focus. Consequently, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law treated sinners with scorn and contempt. Now what makes you think that somebody's going to pay attention to what they they have to say when they're looking at you from that? Uh, Compassion draws people to you. Scorn and contempt and looking down upon others turns people away. And God help the church if they ever get into that mindset and look at others in that fashion. Jesus... I mean, it was unthinkable for Israel's spiritual leaders (coughs) to welcome sinners with a bad reputation into their presence and to eat with them. How many of you have a large number of friends who who don't know the Lord? You have a good number. How much time do you spend with them? (coughs) I hope you spend a good amount of time with them just to be a friend. You never know how God's gonna work. More about that towards the end of the sermon. But Jesus rightly criticized the religious authorities in Matthew 23 by stating that they do not practice what they preach. They lay heavy loads on people, that is adding rules to the teachings of Moses. These teachers of the law were not willing to lift a finger to help others. They complicated spiritual and religious matters with their blabbering. They turned their backs on sinners. In conclusion, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law (coughs) did not try to help people understand God's word in a way that reflected the very heart of God. Obviously, the contrast between Jesus and the religious authorities was visible before the people, and so the insults and the negative words just flew back and forth to one another. But the sinners and the tax collectors drew near to Jesus because he had compassion on them, and he had something, he had hope in his words, and That's what people need. They need hope. They need compassion. They need life in you, my brothers and sisters, in Christ. You're the messengers that bring this life-giving message to them. The third and final setting of which I want to describe is a theological setting. I want to make clear that the word lost, lost, L-O-S-T, I want that to resonate in your heart. You know, I took a concordance, and I went through, and I was looking for the word unsaved. I couldn't find it. Although the concept of unsaved is taught in scripture, much like Trinity is taught in scripture, but the word Trinity is not in the Bible, (coughs) lost is probably the best word to describe a sinner who needs Christ. You know, I got to thinking, I have, when I refer to friends and family as being unsaved or they don't know Christ, it's not, how can I put it? It doesn't hit my heart. It doesn't tug at my heart because we can lose things. When we lose things, Uh, when it's in reference to animals or things we own or even our health or even our employment. It involves frustration, inconvenience, feeling upset, even fear. But when lost is used in reference to people's eternal destinies, that's a different matter. I found myself, oh, my... My heart hurts. I have a brother, John, who lives in the streets of Boston. Been like that for many, many years. He's lost. He's lost. I, sometimes when I, when I think about it, it makes me teary. Or when I think of others who are lost, I get a little teary. And you know what? I back up. And I use words like unsaved. They don't know the Lord. It's less painful to say it that way. But when you say someone is lost, it's very personal. I don't know, it seems to go right to the heart of the issue. Imagine losing your four-year-old toddler in an amusement park. He's holding your hand and then the squiggly They let go for a moment, and they take off. And you look around and say, where's my kid? Where's my grandchild? You start to panic, and you have that sinking feeling that your child is lost. I want us, if you will, to think of people who don't know Christ, as being lost, to have that sinking feeling when you meet people like that. I think perhaps, just perhaps, it may cause us to share the gospel more passionately, transparently, sincerely. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is Ephesians 2 verse 12. Paul describes the lost sinner in this way. You were, at the time, separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. How do the lost live without hope? They put their hope, they put their trust in other things, thinking it's going to save them, but it doesn't. We who know Christ who have been found by the Lord. We, um, we know the truth, and our lost family members and friends need this truth. To be spiritually lost is to be doomed to deception, discouragement, dangers, death, and eventually divine condemnation. That's pretty heavy stuff. And so when we read Luke chapter 15, this is the setting that I want us to understand. The big idea that emerges, if you will, from Luke 15, is that while the lost soul deeply grieves the heart of God, the sinner's repentance brings celebration in heaven. So I want to talk briefly about three concepts um, that the story's exposed. There's the value of the soul, of the lost soul. There's the cost of searching for the lost soul and the joy of finding the lost soul. So quickly, the value of the soul, the value of the lost soul. Jesus begins his ministry or his story by asking that rhetorical question of his audience. You see that in verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? A flock was approximately about a hundred. A modest, more modest flock could go up to perhaps two hundred. Each night, however, the shepherd would bring the flock into a, a fold, a pandaria, And as they would come in, he would count them. Ninety-nine, there's one missing. Uh Uh-oh, what does he do? He doesn't just abandon the ninety-nine, so now you have ninety-nine ready ready to run off. No, there he he takes responsible actions and appoints others to watch over these Um, ninety-nine, make sure that they're not in danger. And what does the shepherd do? He goes out in search of the lost sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus said, my father who has given them, he's referring to sheep who hear the voice of Jesus, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus also said, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Your soul is the most valuable of all creation because we are made in the image of God. God enables us to fellowship with him, to reason, to feel emotion, to make decisions, all kinds of decisions. That's what separates us from the rest of all of God's creation. Your soul was made to live forever. <clears throat> it will never die. When God knelt down, if you will, I love the song by Don Francisco it describes how God took that clay from the earth and formed man. And scripture says that and God breathed into him and he became a living soul. We share that part of God. That part of us will never die. And um, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. A most valuable thing. Your soul. Your soul has gained the interest of the devil, however, who blinds everyone from the truth of God and leads souls to rebel against God. So when you and I were born, we were born spiritually dead, spiritually blind, and already prone to rebel against God. And, um, And apart from God's intervention in our lives, we would remain spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and rebellious to God, having no hope. But God the Father is the one who draws us to his son and he moves into us. That's why he sent his son into this world. I love John three sixteen. The more you think about it, it is profound truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nevertheless, your soul has also captured the heart of God. God is not willing that any should perish. God is not willing for any soul to perish. That's the heart of God. And you see God rejoicing over the repentance of one sinner. He's not talking about all of humanity. God is going after one sinner at a time. And and when that sinner repents, God's heart is filled with great joy and the angels of heaven rejoice. And your soul is most valued by God. Why? You and me were not purchased with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. There is no other price. There is no other way in which we can be saved except faith in Christ and the shed, his shed blood on the cross that takes away our sin. There's no other way. And so when we share the gospel with others, we pray for the Spirit of God to open up their, their minds and their hearts to hear the truth that is being spoken. I want to talk now not only of the value of the soul, but the cost of searching for the lost soul. It is a life-threatening situation for sheep when it wanders away from the flock. Sheep are prone to wander. We see that in Isaiah chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord, the Lord has laid uh, our iniquity on Jesus. You know, it was Christ It was God the Father that crucified Christ. Yes, he used the hands of the Roman soldiers and used the corruption and the selfishness of the the Pharisees and the unthinking mob who cried out to release Barabbas instead of Christ. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're lost They don't even know that they're lost. And that's an interesting concept or idea, that the lost don't even know that they're lost. And they become more familiar with their lostness, thinking that they are religious, when in fact they are far from God. Consider for a moment the cost that the shepherd undertakes when he begins his search for the lost sheep. He's entrusted the 99 in the pen and now the shepherd goes out, and what does he do? Spends many sleepless nights. Uh, is ex- exposed to the harsh wilderness, um, the dangers of wild animals, predators that are looking for this lone sheep. Predators were always out there, and um, you know, just the harsh environment and and uh, the land. That's a very costly thing. You know the song that I tried to sing for you, the ninety and nine? If you if you Google the ninety and nine, and Google the lyrics, read the lyrics over again, and you'll be amazed, you know, how the poem itself describes the cost that God took upon Himself. But I want you to realize that the longer the search, the greater the risk of the sheep's death. And like the woman who loses the coin, one of 10 silver coins that was part of her headdress, she too exercises every possible means of searching for that lost coin, cleaning, lighting, searching diligently for the lost coin in her humble abode. But how do these actions Uh, of the searching shepherd and woman, searching for the lost coin. How do they reflect the search, the cost that God bore himself as he sought the lost sheep? You can jot these passages down, you can look at them, but I'm gonna summarize these these actions. Philippians 2, verses five through eight. Luke 22, verses 39 through 41. John 3:16 First of all the cost that God bore The son of God did not cling to his heavenly glory He surrendered it set it aside The son of God willingly surrendered his rights and privileges when Jesus walked on this earth He did everything according to the father's will It was The Lord Jesus chose not to use his attributes. He didn't deny them, but he didn't use his powers. It was God the Father that worked through Christ and accomplished these miracles. The Son of God willingly endured the presence and the brutal treatment of sinful hands that mistreated him, that called him names. The Son of God agonized over the cost that he would pay to obey his Father's will. When you look in the garden of Gethsemane and you find Jesus kneeling, what image comes to mind as he's asking God, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he sweat great drops of blood. The soul of Jesus was in full agony. Why? Well, number one, he was going to be separated from his heavenly father for the first time. I'm not gonna say in his creation because God was not created, but God is eternal without beginning and without end. But for the first time, the father and son who have been face to face always would now be separated. As Jesus would become sin for us, that he might take upon Himself, our sin, and exchange give us his righteousness. And that was agonizing for the Lord. Moreover, he had to bear the wrath of God, God the Father. Each of us deserve the wrath of God. Now think about the wrath of God for just a moment, and I'm wrapping this up, but Think about that wrath for just a moment. One person for all eternity be separated from God and to bear that anger, that wrath against our unrighteousness. We could not bear it. But Jesus did. Not just for one person or ten people, but for the whole world. I, I mean, it's just incredible how he was able to, in that three hours on the, or the six hours on the cross, but those three hours when the land was dark, that um, this exchange of bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt, and Jesus tasted hell for us. Um, it just blows my mind. I, I can't fathom that, and I'm thankful for the amazing grace that God has shown you and shown me he felt the weight of each person's deserved punishment for sin and here's the father giving up his own son imagine son saying father I want my I want your will to be done not my will can you imagine the father just listening to his son's cry and he he could say you know I'm done with this plan, forget it. But no, the father went through with it because his love for you, his love for lost sinners, is just as intense and just as deep as his love for Jesus Christ. Jesus loves you. I'm sorry, God the father loves you as much as he loves his own son. And you would say, whoa, that's unthinkable. No, it isn't. Jesus died on the cross that we may become the children of God and joint ears with Jesus. And the Father delights in the, in the repentance of a sinner. And that repentance comes when we put our faith and trust in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. I've shared with you the value of the lost soul, the cost of searching for the lost soul, now we look at the third and final concept that exposes the very heart of God, the joy of finding the lost soul. The Good Shepherd will never give up searching the lost sinner. I've been thinking over my pre, my, the days leading up to my salvation. I saw the things, I reviewed my life, my actions. While I was in high school, And while I was in the military and when I came out, I'm saying, why would God chase after me? Why did he seek me out? I have nothing good to offer. And I don't. None of us do for that matter. But it was God's delight to seek me out. And he chased me down. And he took hold of me. You've heard of the, I think I may have shared this with you before, maybe. Do you know the two hound dogs of heaven? That's Psalm 23, verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's goodness and mercy hounded me, and God gave me a peace and forgave all my actions. Hmm. I'm a different man, still a piece of work. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done in my life, but I'm, I'm his, and he'll never cast me aside. I am eternally secure. All that Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, I will not lose. It doesn't depend upon me holding on to God. God is the one who holds on to us and no one is able to pluck us out of his hand. I remember having a Bible study with a group of saints from another local church years ago and they believed in eternal insecurity. You can lose your salvation. And and I was showing them from scripture what, what what the word was saying. And then this one person said, yeah, but we can still jump out of God's hand. Oh, brother, this is hopeless. You know, God, open their eyes to the truth of your word. Anyway, the good shepherd finds his lost sheep, or the lost sinner, the, the lost soul. The good shepherd does not whip the sheep back into the fold, doesn't crack the whip or drive them like they're cattle. What does a shepherd do? He picks up that sheep, and he carries the sheep on his shoulders. This is how Jesus described his actions, God's actions. It's a beautiful image in your mind. And, you know, that's what God did. He carried this wounded soul, this wounded soul who shook his fist at God. and said, is that the best you can do? Oh, man, I was so stupid when I was a young man. So insensitive to God. No. No, God was very gracious with me. And um, He carries us back, and He does so joyfully. And He talks to that sheep. And God was talking to me and just giving me peace because it was His delight. I said, Here I am, Lord. I'm your man. Do what you want with my life. So he comes to his group, brings them home. Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I have found Phil and He was lost, but now he's found. How about you? The Lord is calling. Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and after they had eaten of that forbidden fruit, they, they realized that they were naked. They realized they did wrong. And they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. And then they hid themselves when the Lord came walking through the, the garden in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Adam did not know that he was lost, but he was lost. And God came seeking him. So God is calling you. If you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, if you perceive yourself to be lost, do you hear God calling your name? Frank, James, Mary, Dana, Paul, where are you? Where are you? You know, Jesus, when he comes searching for us, you know what? You know how he finds us? Like the sheep, the wounded sheep that's out in the wilderness. It's ready to die. It will cry. And I think God hears our cries when we're at the end of our lives, the end of our rope, and don't know which way to turn. We cry out, Oh God, help me. He's right there. He's right there. He will come and rescue and carry because it's his delight, it's his nature. Our gracious God and the angels of heaven rejoice when a sinner repents and is born again. So let me wrap it up with a few uh, applications. Number one, please look at others through the eyes of Christ. When Jesus saw the multitude, He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. Have compassion on those that you see that are weary and are tired and they carry heavy loads. Maybe their home life is a wreck. Maybe their children are are rebellious. Maybe their mates are sick. Maybe they themselves have a, a debilitating disease. See as Jesus sees, feel what Jesus feels, and pray as Jesus prayed. For Jesus said to his disciples, pray that the Lord of our harvest would send workers. That's when we can say, send me, Lord. Send me out into the community. Be witness wherever you are in your work, in your home, with family. Secondly, never underestimate the value of a soul. Never look down upon people. We are designed to live forever. Our bodies are going to die, but the real person inside is going to live forever. question is, heaven or is it in hell? Third, stay in touch with the lost by cultivating friendships. Gain their trust. Don't be, you know, People know that I'm a Christian. When I meet new people, they soon figure out, oh yeah, there's something different about you, and I'm not ashamed to tell them that I love Jesus. I'm a follower. But when I befriend them, I do so, not so I can put another notch on the edge of my Bible. Oh, I've got another one saved. I don't do the saving. God does the saving. I'm just a witness. But people want to see compassion. They want to see the compassion of God. So let the compassion of God that's in you flow out and embrace others. And weep with those who weep, Paul writes. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Another application. Treat all people with compassion. Never write off other people. Just maybe... The lost will be will draw closer to you, to hear the word of life. Another application: be patient with others. God may be working in their lives. You may be dealing with a, a grumpy neighbor, and there's just there's no peace. You know, Scripture says, try to be at peace as much as possible with all people. Good, but you know, at the same time. Continue to be patient. God is working. You may not see, you cannot see how the spirit of God is working in the lives of others, working in the soul of that person. But those are the individual, I mean, that's, that's God's responsibility. He's either going to hold them accountable for their, their actions, or he's going to forgive them. One way or the other, God is at work. Be patient. Be patient with yourself, with others, and watch God's hand at work. Rejoice with God when sinners repent. As Paul said in Romans 13, 13? 13, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Just give yourself away as Jesus gave himself away. And to the person who is lost, if you hear, again, the good shepherd calling you by name, say, come to me. Lay down your life before me. Trust that I died for your sins. Stop trying to run your own life and the lives of others. Let me take care of you. You're wounded. You're angry. You're lonely. You're beaten up. There's nothing left. Give it to me. I specialize in broken lives. That's what Jesus does. Gracious Father, thank you that you took this broken man when he was just 23 and gave him a new life, a new identity in Christ. You promised me and you promise each of us who come to you that the old is gone the new is come. I thank you that my past is in the past. Behind me, I thank you, God, that a new life is before me. And even today and every day since my salvation, you continue to rejoice. And all the angels in heaven continue to rejoice in the repentance of this sinner. There must be a lot of... a lot of joy in heaven, even now, God, for all those who have repented and trusted in you. Help us, Lord, to add to that further joy in heaven and to bring further pleasure to your heart by being like Jesus and bringing the Savior to them through our witness, through our lives. Continue, O O God, to draw us closer to you and closer to one another in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.